everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror. We are podcasting from the Horrid Halls for our second year. We are still here. Last month was our two-year anniversary. And just as we did in January 2014, we're going to take a look back. We're going to, uh, let's say, prequelize our little podcast and take a look back at what we've done, what we've talked about, and more importantly, what you've wanted to talk about. Yeah, getting listener mail and listener feedback and listener comments on the episodes are one of my favorite things about recording the podcast. I think Alex would say the same thing. And while we do like to address your comments on the website as they come, we try to reply to your mail, we also like to do a show so you can hear what other people think without necessarily using the same mediums that they use, because there's a lot of ways to get a hold of us, and you guys use all of those ways. So yeah, we're back for another assessment episode to read your mail and talk back to you and have a laugh at some of our hilarious bloopers collected over the year. And I know we don't respond to every comment or every tweet or every Facebook, but we do read them all, and sometimes it's just a sheer moment of, wow, that's a really good point. Or that's really interesting and it makes us think and we don't often respond to it kind of knowing that we've got this episode as like a catch-all. So we will, as Andrea said, kind of respond to a lot of the feedback, a lot of the common themes we're hearing and as well maybe reassess some of our own opinions and you know what's transpired in the last year and how that shapes our own worldviews. That's right. That's another great thing I love about this episode is it's like a walk down memory lane. Just kind of recap these things. And the first episode we're going to talk about is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that just seems like so long ago. For those of you that maybe don't remember, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we did for our Christmas episode last year. So talking about the themes of family and community and how that all bridges together over Christmas. And we got a little bit of feedback on this episode. And One of the main points was from a fellow named Joseph Grego, and he pointed out to us that cannibalism is never actually mentioned in the film. It's, I guess, kind of insinuated, and that was something that was layered on later by critics and fans, and then it was obviously really prevalent in the sequels, but it never quite came up in the original film. That's right. It was really interesting that he pointed that out, that we didn't point that out in the episode. That's interesting, too. But thank you, Joseph, for pointing that out to us. I I feel like that's almost one of those interesting little horror Easter eggs that exist, you know, these classic canon horror movies that we love. I come across that a lot as well when I'm talking about Night of the Living Dead, which I talked about an awful lot in my thesis. There's that weird inconsistency of Karen bludgeoning her mother with a gardening spade instead of eating her. Like, what the fuck is that? It actually kind of dismantles this zombie onslaught universe that Night of the Living Dead created. So I actually kind of dig those little inconsistencies and those little things that you're like, hey, only a real horror fan would know that. Yeah, I actually went back and checked both the official Wikipedia page and the IMDb page, and in both the synopses, cannibalism is mentioned. It's one of like the first sentences that the Sawyers are a cannibalistic family. And when we talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the major themes in what we brought up was the idea of a capitalistic 
cannibalistic culture that really consumes its own and it's this horrible cycle of churning out workers and you know the rich get richer and the poor get poorer and there's no kind of even keel so I think that's what really bridged that notion of having a cannibalistic family it makes a lot more sense from an analytic point of view. That's right. And it's not explicitly shown people consuming human flesh, but it is really strongly implied. Like for the rest of you who are just kind of like, wait a sec. No, they totally eat sausage. They don't. They serve sausage. It's on the table, but they've never actually said that this is your friend. We get to see Grandpa sucking on Sally's bloody finger to kind of get his fix. And the way the family are picking off these kids is obviously analogous to the way people treat animals for the slaughter. Except for the fact that I always thought you actually want to try not to scare the animals before you slaughter them because it makes the meat tough. But what I wouldn't do for one of those vertebrate dinner chairs. Your boyfriend's parents would love that. The only other thing that I've kind of ruminated on in the last year concerning Texas Chainsaw Massacre would be the film Texas Chainsaw, which was kind of a, I guess, a January release, I believe in 2013. It just got dumped and was number one. First week it was out and then it was slammed by horror fans. And I watched it on Netflix this year and it actually really scared me because I didn't hate it. It was really fucking dumb, but I didn't hate it. So that's my real insight into Texas Chainsaw Massacre lore. Now our next episode after that, it was February. In February, we like to get a little bit romantic. We like to do kind of a Valentine's-themed episode. And so our episode last year was on Monster Brides. We talked about Bride of Frankenstein and Brides of Dracula. That was a really fun episode to record because we've never really gone that far back with the films we've talked about. We get a lot of great responses from you guys and a lot of great ideas in terms of movies and topic ideas. And we really are looking at all of those and incorporating them as we go. So I put it to you listeners. Do you want to hear more about classic horror on the Faculty of Horror? I'm definitely into it. I really love these old films. They don't really scare me, but I just find them really charming. I was a really big fan of Tim Burton's film, Ed Wood, and I think that kind of developed a lot of my fondness for that bygone era of silent or not-so-silent horror films. That's right. And in working at the magazine, I'm reviewing more and more new films, more and more terrible new films, that it's really nice to take a break and go back and look at a classic that has stood the test of time, that has been imitated and imitated and never duplicated. So we do like doing classic horror, but you let us know if you like us doing it. Now, we got an interesting message on this one from Blake McCurdy, who said, If we discuss the patriarchy, which I understand at times we must, do we not have to at least mention the matriarchy, either by way of negation or by example, as in myth? In any event, surely there's a philosophical discussion to be had about a new way of looking at things in light of, well, ladies like yourselves. And I like how he kind of folded a compliment in with his comment. So thank you very much for that, Blake. To respond, I guess, when I first read that, first of all, it's, it's a tricky couple of sentences, either by way of negation or by example, as in myth. That one took about 10 minutes for me to pick apart. Matriarchy, to explain, it's a social organizational form in which the mother or the eldest female heads the family, but it can also be used to refer to a government or power in the hands of women. And I actually can't think of many examples of a matriarchy in horror film where it's not depicted as something ridiculous, 
like something to be ridiculed. It's always kind of absurd when you see it in popular culture. And in horror film, it's virtually non-existent. But one great example is a film that I recently saw for review for the magazine called Witching and Bitching which was written and directed by Alex de la Iglesia. And I was assigned to review the film for Rue Morgue. And by the time I was finished watching it, I was so angry. I was just shaking. And I texted Alex about it right away. And from what I recall, you couldn't even get through it. No, that's true. It's rare to get such an impassioned text from Andrea. And uh, she lent me a copy of it just for my own edification and to check it out. And I think, you know, and I've done this with Andrea myself, like, okay, you got to watch this. And I, I want to make sure I'm not crazy in my opinion of this, because I feel like Andrea is a really great barometer for that. Now, Andrea had hinted to me that there were no redeeming qualities in that film. And the moment you feel your stomach start to sink, it's just going to keep sinking. I gave up on it, I think, like 45 minutes into it. I I couldn't really do it. And I think I skipped ahead and watched like the last five minutes and was like, uh, no, no, hell no. Now, see, that is a very big difference between Alex and I is I will never give up on a movie. As bad as it is, I will suffer through so I can at least explicate how much I hated it. But when I said to her that it had no redeeming traits, it's because watching it, I expected redemption. It was set up so misogynist, these guys who just hated women, hated the women in their lives, resented them, and the women in their lives are depicted as these horrible, selfish, cruel beings. And then the story is about them coming upon a coven of witches under a matriarchal structure. And so the implication was, of course, like this is what it would be like if women were allowed to rule the world. And I kept expecting the satire to drop. I kept expecting these guys to learn their lesson and decide that maybe we're all equal. But that never happened. And in fact, misogyny and patriarchy is very reified and restored by the end of the film, which was really fucking crushing to watch. I feel like witching and bitching is definitely the clearest example of something that I've seen of a matriarchy. And I feel like there might have been other examples, maybe in like a Twilight Zone episode. But I feel like in these depictions of matriarchy, there's an inherent understanding of misandry and like that hatred of men. And that's like, I want to take over the world, but I love men. It's going to be all good, guys. Just, you know, let it happen. So if you can think of any more examples dear listeners of a matriarchy or a matriarchal organization depicted in horror let us know because the more I was thinking about this the more I think it would be a really interesting episode I kind of want to talk about witching and bitching on a podcast but I'm scared that it's just going to be a one hour long bitch fest that'd mean I'd have to actually watch the whole thing and I don't want to do that but I know we have some aspiring filmmakers who listen to this podcast and uh, if we can't think of one, if our listeners can't think of one, then hey, make one yourself and fucking make it interesting and awesome. The next episode we did was on Evil Dead 1 and 2. There's some mentions of Army of Darkness and of the Evil Dead remake. Now, we didn't get a whole lot of mail for this episode. We got a big bump in listenerhood because I think that was the month that we were featured on the AV Club. So we got a lot of new listeners. So if you're one of those new listeners, welcome. We were so happy to welcome you with that particular episode. I think that episode for us, it was... A playful topic for us, because Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 are very playful movies, and I think what we pulled out of it was a bit surprising for some listeners. 
Yeah, we pulled a lot of mythology out of Evil Dead and, you know, the hero's journey and the Campbellian theory around what it means to be a hero and what that hero's trajectory is. But as I sometimes like to say, I love that quote from Mary Poppins that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And that's why I think some of the most successfully engaging films are films that are really entertaining to watch. So maybe Raimi didn't set out to do all that, or maybe he did. And maybe he was just really clever at masking all these ideas and things in a really kind of fun and inventive shell. That's right, and it's something that we revisit because we did talk about another Raimi film later in the year. We try not to repeat our material too much. We try not to stick to one subgenre of horror too religiously or rehash the same filmmaker again and again. But I think this was the first time that we did the same filmmaker twice in a year because later on last year we talked about Drag Me to Hell. Yeah, we absolutely don't want to repeat too much, but I think when you have a filmmaker who's contributed as much to the genre as someone like Sam Raimi has, who's such a fan of the genre, and who's provided so many great elements to it, it's hard not to, and we kind of be doing ourselves in this podcast a disservice if we didn't really sink our teeth into it. So we hope you will forgive this indiscretion. I also think the lineage that Evil Dead has produced is utterly fascinating. I mean, not only did we talk about those four movies, as well as the musical, as well as the action figures that Andrea has in her apartment, but now there is an Evil Ash versus the Evil Dead TV show coming out. I was actually just reading the other day that they are expecting it to air, I believe, at the end of 2015. So I am cautiously optimistic for that. And that's fair. I think this is an episode that I'll actually revisit just before the show comes and maybe soften the blow and remind me that I take it more seriously than it may be intended. Stars announced today it has greenlit the long-awaited follow-up to the classic horror film franchise The Evil Dead. The project reteams the original director Sam Raimi with star Bruce Campbell. Titled Ash vs. Evil Dead, the 10-episode series will see Campbell reprise his role as Ash, the chainsaw-handed monster hunter who has spent the last 30 years avoiding responsibility, maturity, and the terrors of the evil dead. When a deadite plague threatens to destroy all of mankind, Ash is finally forced to face his demons, personal and literal. So our next episode was a little bit special to me. Our next episode we did on Phantasm. And this one was an interesting episode because it was a film that Alex and I had previously thought to be a little bit overrated. Obviously very creative and unique and it stood in a league of its own. And Don Coscarelli has obviously gone to do great things in horror, but it didn't really reach Alex and I. So when we sat down to do this podcast and we did our research, we really discovered a new appreciation for for the film, which was really special to me. And I thought it was really cool that a lot of the mail that we got reinforced our observations and said, I hadn't thought of it, but I think that's exactly why I love it so much. And basically, a lot of the comments we got on this episode were from male listeners who were seeing themselves either through, you know, the loss of a loved one or their own imagination, really deeply connected with that film. I thought it was really interesting how one commenter that goes under the name Evil Taylor Hicks pointed out his own experience of the fear of losing his father and I love how he really kind of pinpointed the logic of the 14 year old and I I thought it was you know great observation and it reminded me as I was reading his comment of the Buffy episode which we actually talked about the year before where uh, you know the episode goes on and but Buffy's actually in a mental institution and I was like god what if what if the entire phantasm series is like this poor kid's like deranged life in a mental institution 
I think the Phantasm series, in particular the first two films, are a really great example of the power of imagination and the power of your mind to kind of overcome and deal with these really scary and terrifying things that actually happen in real life. And also, horror movies aren't for kids. They're kind of made with adult audiences in mind. They're more often than not rated R. I'm sure Phantasm is. And yet, it was made with this boyish imagination that captured the imaginations of boys. So, in many respects, it hit every mark it was aiming for. Now, Evil Taylor Hicks actually had a half-assed theory. He called it half-assed. I'm not. uh, About where alchemy got her name. Because in the episode, I mentioned that, why would she be called alchemy? That's such an unusual name, and it's loaded with meaning, but I couldn't apply it to any of the major themes in the film he points out that at the end of phantasm 2 alchemy transforms into the tall man and in phantasm 3 when the tall man turns into one of the killer spheres it's gold coincidence probably but it's an interesting thought i have been trying to wrap my head around that all day and i can't develop that theory any further so let's just go with it he turned into gold Yeah, let's give the Phantasm series credit for developing a metaphor over, like, two films. That's impressive. We also got a great email from our friend, Owen Garth, the Demon of Des Moines, who pointed out that one thing he noticed in both movies is that the tall man has a penchant for portraying an attractive female and having sex with the main characters. Not sure what to make of it, but definitely the creepiest part for me. I think what's hilarious about that is in the mind of a 12-year-old boy who is, you know, so curious and imaginative, but really sexually immature and largely innocent, it seems like a predatory thing. And at the end of the day, it's I guess the tall man just learned that he can catch more flies with honey. I love that point that Owen made, but I think it's actually one of the reductive qualities of this film because, you know, it's like what we always try to lobby against with this podcast is, you know, men are more than just sex-craved, you know, dick havers. They are intelligent and complex and wonderful human beings in their own right, just as women are more than sexual objects. So I think Phantasm actually has so much to say about those things, especially coming from a male perspective. But I feel like that element of it is kind of reductive, that there is one semi-attractive chick and they will go off and boff her as quickly as they can. Well, Phantasm 2 follows Michael into his adolescence, right? So I think insofar as everything was a surreal nightmare, it got to be a bit of a wet dream at that point. How could it not be with those high-waisted jeans? It smells like something's burning. It's just me, baby. And coming from a male perspective, I think it only makes sense to shift into a female narrative. And the next episode we did was one of our most epic yet, and that was on the subject of witches. In this episode, we tackled The Craft, Antichrist, and Lords of Salem. So it was a big episode talking about three big films with a lot of analysis and the whole topic having so much history in and of itself. So it was, as I mentioned in the episode, it was something that we talked about doing for a long time. And I'm still, I'm so glad we did it and the way it turned out. And I I have a real affinity for that episode. I do too, but I really feel like we're not quite finished. A couple of letters that we received about this episode were like, there's going to be a part two, right? And I really think there has to be. I think the subject is so dense and so readily apparent in horror that I think we did a good job. We picked three films that tackled it very differently, but there are so many more out there. So I'd really like to revisit this subject in the future. 
Now, one of the emails we got was from Sarah Horrocks, who wrote that she was really happy that we talked about Antichrist in a really critical and appreciative way because a lot of people are wont to dismiss it. And as she said, so many people have really strident opinions against it with readings that I don't relate to. I liked that you made a point to show how it explored misogyny but was not itself misogynist. I thought that was my favorite thing that I was able to pull out of that film is that, you know, we take a little bit of criticism for being a feminist podcast for just panning anything that has any element of violence against women, but clearly that's not the case. We're critical about it, and violence against women has its place in horror because violence and horror go hand in hand, and women are part of the population. I definitely think that Antichrist is one of the most complex films we've ever talked about, and it has one of the most complex dealings with misogyny, because the she character played by Charlotte Gainsbourg is a really hard character to relate to. She's kind of a monster, but you can also see how she's been beaten down by the system, but she's also, you know, seemingly an affluent, upper-middle-class white woman. There are so many juxtapositions within her character that you're trying to sort out, and I, I love that Von Trier, as I've said before, really puts the onus on us as as the audience to take it on and assess it for ourselves. He's not going to tell us anything. It's up to us to make those decisions. And I do feel like he leaves those clues, he leaves those breadcrumbs along the way so that we're not lost in the woods. We are kind of finding our way to something. That's right. And Sarah also mentioned in her comment, she asked if we had read Kayla Janice's House of Psychotic Women. She said it really dives in on this kind of woman in horror. And let me tell you, Alex and I love House of Psychotic Women. That book really blew open floodgates in my brain of what was possible for publication about a feminist perspective in horror films. It is so brave and it really lays her bare and Kayla lives in Toronto now and we see her out and about quite often and I'm only now able to chat with her without just gushing about this book. We'll put an Amazon link in our episode description for this so if you're interested in checking it out if you like the faculty of horror and you like when we kind of get personal and situate ourselves in these characters then you will love that book. It is excellent. Yeah it's the kind of book and the kind of writing that as a writer you read and you're like fuck, do I have anything to write? Has it all just been said? And then you get over that and you keep writing. But (laughs) I so highly recommend it. It's such a fascinating, original, and sharp book, and I adore it. And actually from this comment from Sarah, and it pops up a few more times in the comments we got, was a suggestion, an ask, to do an episode about possession. And that film is insane. <laughs> I actually recently recommended it to a friend of mine. And so I was like, oh, I should go back and rewatch it. I haven't watched that in a few years. And I only got about halfway through and I just felt like heavy. I felt like I had stones on my chest watching it. I definitely think it'd be a great topic, but uh, I gotta, gotta mentally prepare for that one. <laughs> We also got a message from a T-Quest who said that we really nailed the topic and we did a great job. And for me, it was really funny because reading through this message, it says something to the effect of notions of misogyny, male entitlement, being somewhat in the fore of many people's thoughts due to current events. And so I was looking at this and I was trying to think back. There is always an event. There is always some shit going down where notions of misogyny, male entitlement are at the front. It might have been Gamergate. Anyway, I can't remember what it was, but I thought it was great that a comment like that never loses its relevance because the fight goes on. 
We also got a message from a listener named Diana who really appreciated the fact that our episode touched on what seems to be a new trend in books and now in films of role reversal and turning the fairy tales on their heads. Alex touched on it when she mentioned the new release of Maleficent. I think we mentioned Wicked. And she writes, after all, it was a woman who dared to seize the forbidden fruit of knowledge. I'd like to think of women as daring and courageous rather than guilty for this act. And it's not as if men did not benefit. And I think the whole fairy tales turned on their heads is a really interesting phenomenon to me. It's one that I'd like to really explore further. And especially since many of them aim to dismantle the sexist portrayals that were pervasive in these Disney classics that we grew up on. Part of the reason these stories endure are because they speak to a a lived truth, and the fact that we're starting to tweak them to correspond a changing truth is really interesting. Yeah, obviously there's so much feminist scholarly writing, but some of the most interesting feminist creative writing starts from fairy tales. Uh, One of the big contemporary ones was a writer named Jeanette Winterson, and her book, Sexing the Cherry. And those are retellings of classic fairy tales and fables with a really interesting feminist perspective. And I think I read those when I was in high school, and I'm very glad I did. And if you're interested in that kind of thing, check out that book. And she's written other things, and there are a lot of other authors who've done very similar things in that. Because I believe I might have mentioned this on another podcast episode, but a lot of the times when fairy tales and fables were initially written down, they were by female writers, but then they got covered up and lost. And now they're actually finding some old manuscripts in Europe right now. So all these old fables and fairy tales are getting a fresh look from a female perspective. So it's an ever-changing thing because these stories center around women and they're given so little agency that something always kind of seemed not quite right. So we also received a message from someone identified as E.S. who had some interesting observations about the attempted sexual assault by Chris in the craft. And basically I had problematized in the episode how fucked up it was that he was under a love spell and how that would lead to him attacking her because that is so contrary to what love is. He pointed out that if love and sex are equated, especially in the high school mind, I'm quoting him here, it seems that a poisonous mind or one with a skewered take on love and sex would act out as such. And I think he's absolutely right. So touche, good friend. Another comment we got was from a fellow named James Hare. Now, he talks a bit about how the discussion about the Inquisition was a little bit difficult for him and that it's important to understand where that time period was coming from and that maybe patriarchy wasn't the thing that was imposed upon them because they didn't know any better. As he says, to quote him, applying our understanding of a thing called patriarchy conceived in and applied to recent history might not be accurately understood or applied to a society from the past and serves as a reflection of us more than of history. I I can't say I agree with that. Just because we've been able to name certain things now doesn't mean they weren't going on back then. No, it's true. And I I do see where he is coming from. We look back on history with some arrogance that if only we knew then what we know now. And I think what I wrote on his comment was that, you know, hindsight is 2020, but I don't think that discredits our perspective. And I think we tend to understand things better having lived through them. Uh, And that's one of the great merits of studying history is that we can look back and reflect so that we don't make those same mistakes again. 
And I guess I disagree that times today are all that different from how they were in the Inquisition era. There are still witch hunts and moral panics levied against a variety of people based on anything from ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation. The list goes on. It's always changing every year, and it's always the same bogus shit. And I'm not saying we haven't made some progress as a species, but when it comes to people finding reasons to persecute each other, we're not out of the woods yet. Oh, God, no. You know, I think the more we can do to educate ourselves and learn about our patterns and the patterns that humanity has created, by doing so and seeing those in the past, we can see them more clearly in the present and hopefully more in the future. And that's not to say that we right now can stop all of this, but I think the more people that become aware and vocal and passionate about these things, it's it's a willingness to stop the inequality that has been going on for basically all of time on planet Earth. Now, James followed up that comment with another thread in which he shares a video, and I checked out this video, and it explains the nocebo effect, which is essentially the inverse of a placebo effect. A nocebo is a harmless thing, like a video with non-existent hypersounds that causes harm, like a headache, because you believe it's harmful. It works similarly to a placebo, which is where people are essentially healed based on faith in a product that is more or less medically inert. And I think it's entirely likely that there was empirical evidence against certain witches back in the day based on victims of curses who actually experienced horrible things because they believed these curses. I wish I had thought to mention it, but maybe someday we'll do an episode on the psychosomatic side of witchcraft and maybe shamanism and voodoo. I also wanted to share with our listeners that over Halloween this past year, I actually went to Boston and I went to visit our friend Izzy Lee and hang out and get to see a bit more of Boston. I'd gone the year before and I just wanted to check it out more. And one of the things I'd always really wanted to do was I wanted to go to Salem. And thankfully, from Boston, it's really easy to get to. You go to a central subway station and then you take another train about 25 minutes outside of Boston. Boom, you're in Salem. I actually got my tickets in Boston at like a there and back pass. And the guy was telling me, okay, go wait by those ticket stands and you'll see the track number to go to. And I was standing there with a coffee and I see all these goth kids start amassing by a platform. And I was like, them, I'm with them. I'm going with them. And Salem is, if you haven't been, you can definitely do it, I'd say, in a good day. If you're interested, I highly recommend it. It was so much fun. I really do want to go back. But it's really interesting to me how the Wiccan culture has kind of reclaimed this as a site. Obviously, a lot of people have ventured back there, like Damien Eccles, who was part of the West Memphis Three. He resided there after he got out of prison for a number of years. But also the way they've sold back their culture to us, it was really fun. But there are like... 50 witch shops in Salem, all of them with the most amazing witch trinkets. And like, Lord knows, I bought so much stuff because it was so much fun to like give curse candles to my friends and, you know, bottles of protection and like that kind of stuff is really fun. But they are making, I think, a tidy profit off of us. But uh, I'm happy to give them my money because Lord knows they've earned it from like being burned. Our next message is from someone who identified themselves as the acolyte, and they don't actually specify an acolyte of what? I'd like to think an acolyte of the Faculty of Horror podcast. But this message discusses our episode, but also has some great suggestions for a follow-up episode. We were just talking about doing another witchcraft episode, but also focusing on more classic horror, and the Acolyte suggested some other movies that we could be looking at, including The Witchfinder General, which is a really great one, 
And apparently there are a lot of good witch movies out there that we didn't know about. So don't stop sending us suggestions. We will get to them one day. And we hear again from our friend Owen Garth. And he also enjoyed the episode, but was wondering about the male witch or the warlock. And as he says, we know nothing of the history of the male witch, but perhaps he sought out Satan for the same reasons. He was being repressed in society that didn't agree with his lifestyle choices. And I think that's a really excellent point. And I can't think of maybe outside of maybe some really campy 80s movies where there was a male witch or, or, you know, other than like Harry Potter. But I think Harry Potter just went because he was an orphan. I'm a what? Yeah, I love the idea that witchcraft or, or magic has become an alternative to the norm. I was actually recently writing something for the website Shock Till You Drop, and I was talking about a film that some of you might remember from 1999, a film called End of Days, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he's this sad former cop who's like really muscular, and he's getting pulled into this big fight with the devil to save the world. And you know, he's, he's sad and he doesn't kind of know why he has to fight. And that's never really explained, but he does wind up fighting. And I, I think it turns out okay. But what I thought was really interesting was that the church and Arnold, they're just trying to keep the status quo. The world will go on as we know it. But the devil, who's played by Gabriel Byrne, he's all like weird and sexy and evil. But he keeps saying, you know, God has his turn. I'm not going to end the world. I'm just going to change it. And I kind of thought that sounded like a really fun idea. Like, I want to see the devil's version of this world. It'd just be a lot of fucking and and wine drinking, I think. It's a really interesting observation that he made. We often focus on how patriarchy represses women, but it's really important to note how it represses men as well. In fact, many believe that male violence stems from the ingrained cultural norm for men to repress expression of any emotion and passion, and this can cause them to break down and lash out, and it's a very real thing, and I hope we get the opportunity to explore it more fully in future episodes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, where Jesus Christ. Okay. Hi, everyone. Jesus Christ. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the Faculty of Horror. You're... Blah. I didn't even do that right. Good ah! <laughs> Something that is inherently monstrosity. He omitted a very controversial scene, which is the tree rape. No, it's in there. In the second movie? Yeah, Bobby Joe gets tree raped. No, she gets dragged through. She doesn't get... Well, okay. she gets her clothes... Well, anyway, okay. clip, and then you can say what you just said. I think that's more speaking to the role that a woman had. If she couldn't satisfy her mate and couldn't create a family and couldn't create that sense of domestic comfort, that life was useless. Um, And, oh, fuck, I just made myself really depressed. (laughs) We really hope... No, I don't want to say that. Uh, Bruce Campbell and Ash are forever going to be inextricably linked together. And I think the sense I get from him is that he's actually quite proud of that. And he's signed up and he's not fighting it. He really brought a lot of himself to that part. Not to mention that chin. I just want to suck on it. Oh, I thought you were going to say sit. That would have been better. One of the other really important things to consider, which we've already touched on already in this podcast, is that the first evil... That's my cell phone. I apologize. But wait till it's done. Laughter like an orgasm, can be a kind of inadvertent reaction. No, I guess you work for an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> what? <Whoops. laughs> oh, no, I just came. <laughs> Bye.
I was going to say something. Fun fact, listeners. You heard it from us. No, you didn't. I got it. <laughs> you heard it from Andrea via the audio commentary on the special edition of The Evil Dead that she wouldn't let me borrow. <laughs> and after that very, very heavy topic, because if you haven't listened to that episode in a while, we were talking about these really heavy things like patriarchy and Christianity and the oppression that those elements created. And uh, we decided, you know what, it was, it was summer. We were happy. We were sitting out on Andrea's patio, and uh, we wanted to do some lighter fare. So we started off our summer programming with an episode on Jaws and Piranha. And for an episode that really attempted to deal with lighter fare, we got into a lot of discussion about economics. Yeah, it's funny. It's one of those episodes that we thought we were going to talk about fun creature features at the beach, but when we got into it, I think economics is the last thing we expected to be talking about here on the Faculty of Horror. But hey, it comes up and it happens, and it's kind of fun when it surprises us. One of the comments we heard from this episode was, again, from James Hare, and he wrote a rather long comment, which you can read, and I encourage you to read the whole thing on our website and under the episode. But I want to pick out this one paragraph where he says, and I quote, At this point, society reacts either by clinging to the shattered remains of a model or returns to the quote-unquote natural state, with men being men, women caring for children, and people uniting to confront the natural world as a cohesive unit or tribe. So he's kind of referring to the point where Jaws or the shark or the piranha get too close for comfort and there's a sense of uniting. And, you know, it doesn't quite happen in these movies. And that's what James is pointing out. And you'd think that would happen, that there would be some big bonding thing. But again, it's this masculine trait. We see this a bit in Phantasm, just as I was pointing out in End of Days, where these men just kind of go off and do it alone. And, and you see that happen in both these films where these men kind of sacrifice themselves or part of themselves to go and stop this from going any further. Like the buck stops with me and this ends here. All those kind of things. That, that's where that really comes from, I feel. We got another message from Blake McCurdy, and he is talking largely about Jaws, I think, and I'm going to paraphrase a part of his message. He writes, The people in the middle-class community are all portrayed as incompetent boobs who, though they may own boats, have no connection with or understanding of the ocean's life-giving and life-negating aspects, although they do catch one shark. I thought it was interesting, as much as I remember, I haven't seen this in a long time, the sheriff's wife does not overreact to protect her children as her husband does. She does not fear the ocean, and he hates it and sees in it death and destruction. I thought that was a really interesting observation that Brody's wife isn't nearly as apprehensive about the water as Brody is. And my first thought was just that traditionally women are depicted as being closer to nature than men and thus are seen as wild and reckless and emotional and in need of male intervention to civilize them. And I hadn't caught that theme initially upon watching it, but I totally see what you mean now, Blake. So our next summer episode, in the interest of lighter fare, we decided to do Sleepaway Camp and Friday the 13th. And we were really excited to do this one because Sleepaway Camp is such a gem within horror. It is so bizarre and so interesting that we had a lot of fun reading into it and our listeners had a lot of things to say about it. Yeah, I think definitely Friday the 13th got very little mention from the comments, but Sleepaway Camp was a real point of interest and discussion and I think rightfully so because it does play along as this weird 
oddly toned slasher and then at the end i mean the end informs so much of the movie and so much of the discussion of the movie that you can't not talk about it that's right and our first comment we got from a listener named chris mosher who said i was lucky enough to have rented this film blind in high school so the end was unspoiled and it blew me away as a kid and that final frame has stayed with me ever since and i had a similar experience i think a lot of people had a similar experience but i almost feel that if someone told me oh at the end this is the case i would still go into it and I'd get into the movie because it is very engaging. You get into these characters and their plight and their circumstances and it's still such a shock, even if you know it's coming. Yeah, and I think as I mentioned on the episode, I had it spoiled for me by a classmate. So I knew watching it, when I did eventually get to watch it, that that was on the horizon. It was coming and and in some context, it was going to be revealed that someone was actually a boy. But that final image with that weird noise emitting from Angela is is so inhuman in a way, and it's a really hard moment to process. I think no matter how hardcore you are as a horror fan, we don't really have a context to deal with something like that. That's right. The sound, the growl, and the facial expression were almost more off-putting than the actual penis, which was so interesting. We got a message from Patty Rogers, a really nice message, who said, I'm counting on you two, picking up the slack from feedback and Lance's departure from our airwaves. I'm a podcast down now, and that's very kind of you to say, Patty, but I don't think we'll ever be able to fill feedback and Lance's enormous shoes but we like to think of ourselves as standing on the shoulders of giants and continuing to provoke and entertain horror fans the way they did for many many years. Next up we had a comment from Jess who again gave some great insight into sleepaway camp and really played on a point that we brought up a bit in the podcast which was that, and I quote, while I completely agree with this assessment, and I certainly do not believe that Angela was just introverted, I was a very quiet girl growing up, and I think in a society that is quite extroverted, especially in a more closed environment like that of a camp, introversion is often treated as something to be fixed. And I just 100% agree. I was also a very introverted child. I was essentially an only child, and I just liked books and to be quiet. And when I went to day camps or you know anything like that, I just felt awful. I hated being outdoors. I didn't like grass. So there is a sense that you have to be able to play along. And I feel like as we get older and as we mature, especially if you're a bit of a sensitive introvert growing up, you, you develop a bit of a persona to kind of get through stuff. So I definitely have who I am on the podcast and with my close friends, but I also have a bit of an Alex persona that I put on at a party or when I meet someone new just to bridge that gap and see if I can get through to them to actually get to know them better. And I think introversion is something that's only really starting to finally be understood completely outside of a mental illness, something to be fixed. I think that's a great observation. I also think there's a lot of junk science out there on it. I think it kind of harkens back to the old personality tests that everybody loves to take. And I always see stupid stories pop up on my Facebook feed about how to deal with an introvert and what kind of extrovert are you and stuff like that. But I think society is really starting to accommodate introversion more and more just because the internet allows you to be alone and still feel really connected to everything. And in adulthood, at least, it's a lot easier to control your levels of interaction with others, whereas something like high school and camp is a real nightmare for an introverted adolescent. It's definitely not the case in childhood, so that's really cool that the film spoke to your experience, Jess. Following that, we had a comment from Leah. 
and she actually made a comment back on our second episode, Fatal Attraction and Fear, and followed up with some comments in this episode, which also deal with our Silence of the Lambs episode. So I'm going to quote her right now. And she wrote saying, I'd say, for both Jamie Gum of Silence of the Lambs and Angela, we don't actually know their gender identity because the characters themselves don't confirm this. Lecter speculates that Jamie is not trans while making an overtly transphobic statement. Quoting Cannibal Lecter, Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual, but his pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. Leah goes on to say, with Angela, we see that Peter was forced to live as a girl, but we do not know how they identify where that's a boy, a girl, or non-binary. We do see in the sequel that Angela is living as a woman and is a camp counselor. Viewed together, I would say that Angela is a trans woman, but viewed separately, it's unclear. All that to say both films treat the issue of characters with non-cisgender identities or expressions in transphobic ways, with gum scene with the makeup and the wig made out as horrifying, not just because the wig is a scalp, and pathological. And, as you mentioned, with the reveal of Angela's penis slash flashback as the final moment of horror which is located in being the murderer, but in Angela's body itself. So, and Leah does go on to make several other really great points. So again, I encourage you, if you're interested, to go and read that comment, which is on the episode. Obviously, there are several other not quite trans characters, but they're made out in a horrific kind of way, and that would be Norman Bates in Psycho or in the film Dressed to Kill. There is a lot of fear and panic, as Leah does go on to talk about, surrounding this change in identity. And so I don't know if these characters truly are transgendered, but I think as this comment really accurately reveals is that there is a huge discrepancy and a huge problem with the way that we perceive the transgender community because up until late, we've had very few positive and human portrayals of the transgender community. I think recently with Dallas Buyers Club or a wonderful show called Transparent, there is more of a movement to understand and to grow and to develop positive dialogues around this. So I think we agree that these are problematic and they just aren't handled in the most refined or delicate of senses. But all I can say is that I feel like there are so many positive things moving forward and we are very happy to see all these positive roles coming out for this community. Now, Leah mentioned that she found out about our podcast through Autostraddle, and it's a shame that I wasn't able to see the mention because the page was for paid members only. I hope that the podcast was mentioned in a positive light, so I'm just going to assume it was and say thanks, Autostraddle, because that's how Leah got a hold of us, and we're so happy she did. Leah was also kind enough to point out that we had made a potentially offensive joke in episode two about Ellie's haircut making her look like a boy. This was our episode on fatal attraction and fear, and Ellie was Michael Douglas's character's daughter. And while we do make every effort to provide an inclusive feminist critique, we do fuck up from time to time, and we really do appreciate being called out on it. Now, Alex and I do acknowledge our privilege as white, educated, cisgender feminists and the analytical limitations that this privilege can entail. Now, the Faculty of Horror's mandate is to provide analysis of these films from a critical, analytical perspective, but sometimes we only just scratch the surface. But the whole idea is to open the door to these discussions. And so I have this to say, Leah, please start a queer, non-binary horror film podcast, but 
don't stop listening to ours and schooling us on proper terminology. Our next message about this episode is our dear friend Owen Garth, who reflected upon his own experiences as a Boy Scout and who did experience some horror at a cabin by the lake. And this is in a personal email, so I'm not going to divulge too much, but he does mention the Friday the 13th Nintendo game that I mentioned in that episode that continues to plague my life and every fiber of my being. I'm always so happy to hear from others who loved that game. I love how the first thing they always have to say about it is how punishing it is, but how they couldn't stop playing it if they wanted to. And I wanted to mention that there is an artist out of Toronto named Trevor Henderson, and last Halloween he released his line of horror hangers which are like cardboard cutouts of his illustrations of famous horror villains some famous horror villains and some more obscure horror villains and they're cutouts with these jointed arms and legs and knees and elbows so that you can put them up on your wall and you can kind of pose them in any way that you want so they're really unique and really cool and anyhow he made one of Jason in his purple toned outfit from the game and he called it the 8-bit lakeside lunatic And I want one so bad. I haven't bought it yet, but I'm in the process of moving and redecorating a new space. So I think I will likely pick one up. And we'll post a link to his Etsy shop in our episode notes. Oh my god, I'm so excited! Oh my god! Yeah. Steve Jobs, can I say? Did you kill him? He's a Kendarian demon. (gasps) Um... Okay, no, hang on. I got it. Stop making that face. That was a terrible intro. No, it's not! Most of our listeners don't know this, but I'm so tall, I actually have to live in a bubble, like the bubble boy, Mm -hmm. because I'm really delicate. Yeah, I'm in a booster seat right now to be able to reach her. This podcast is like the ring, so you're all infected, and I'm going to come for all of you. That's correct. And I thought it was really interesting that, yeah, I hate it when I say that you're right or you're correct. I feel like I'm evaluating you. I'm cutting that out. I hate when I do that. Sometimes I wish that there was video footage of our podcast because Alex just put a chip in her mouth and it fell out onto her lap. She ate it anyway. Coscarelli himself admits that it's it's kind of a coming of age, a cunting of age. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Holy shit, the birds. Do you think they're coming through? I have no idea. The fact that there are these brainless things that happen around and attack random people, these are midgets that do the... Oh, I shouldn't say midgets. Okay, I'm going to go for it. And we've got some really glorious balls. Blahs. There's a star man waiting in the sky. Bonnie is being terrorized by a bully in her what? No, that's the wrong one. Bonnie was apparently the survivor of a horrible apartment fire. (laughs) What? (laughs) I was going to make a, there's a joke in there somewhere, but I don't know what it is. I just want to be a woman. Speaking of not having friends. Yeah, fill up my fucking wine. It's hot in here, right? Ball sack. I don't want to say ball sack in the podcast. (laughs) Whoa, you can't even see what fingers I'm throwing at you. You're giving me the finger? No. I love you. (laughs) Next up, we decided to tackle a pretty big theme and one that I think we both also felt was quite intimidating and that was the idea of eating disorders in horror films and we tackled that through the two films Black Swan and Drag Me to Hell. Now when I say this is an intimidating subject I think it's because just the topic of eating disorders is is so terrifying and it's a really sensitive topic so coming to that and then talking about it through these films who deal with it in very very different ways 
is hard. But I think thankfully, as we saw through the comments, there were a lot of points that we brought up that spoke to people. And then a lot of people really contributed their own stories and ideas. And it was so rewarding to get all these comments and people really being open to share and participate in this discussion. One of our regular listeners, Jess, writes in again, and she illustrated a couple problems she had, specifically with Black Swan, and that mainly has to do with the whole virgin whore dichotomy that is brought up time and again throughout this film. Now, obviously, you have Nina, played by Natalie Portman, as the virginal character, and then Mila Kunis, who shows up as the kind of sexy boys kind of girl the perfect ideal of you know what it is to be a woman and the way that can induce a bit of a panic now one of the things Jess really hits on with this in this comment is there's a lack of agency within Nina that she feels is really problematic and I definitely don't disagree with her and I wrote back to her in the comments and you can see that as well I feel like for me and I worked in the dance community for a number of years on the more and men side of things and just knowing ballet dancers in particular there's something very childlike about them and there's something almost a bit stunted about them not that they're not incredible artists and amazing people but there is something about ballet where you bleed out of your body you break bones you have injuries you're never going to come back from all to attain this perfection whereas you know as we also mentioned in the wrestler there is something very visceral like you're grunting you're fighting you're getting everything out it's very performative but ballet is much more internal in a different kind of performative way so I feel like that is the balance and I think what Darren Aronofsky the director of both Black Swan and the wrestler was making the point of is the way the male female binary is explained and explored. That's right. It's explained and explored in what I would consider a pretty realistic way. The wrestler is portrayed as a tragic hero, whereas Nina is portrayed as this character who is crushed under the weight of everything else. And and I do see what Jess is saying, but I do love an unhappy ending, especially in horror. I find it's stories like that that hit me way harder because order is not restored and it really causes you to complicate the events that led to this crash, whether or not you can relate to the character. You know, sometimes I like seeing a depiction of a woman persevering in spite of patriarchy, but I think it's also really important that there are films out there that show a woman being destroyed by it. And while it doesn't really make for relatable characters, I hope, but life under patriarchy isn't a fairy tale with a happy ending. And sometimes I appreciate seeing that in film as morbid as it is. Yeah, one of the points I made in regards to Nina, I mean, we talked about the wrestler character as being a tragic figure. Now, all tragic figures have a tragic flaw. And I would say Nina's flaw is being blind to her lack of resources and opportunities. She just believes so faithfully in this world, and that's why she succumbs to it. Now, I thought it was really interesting. One of my favorite movies I saw in 2014 was David Fincher's Gone Girl. And I highly encourage you to see it. I know I bugged Andrea forever to see it, but there's a really great monologue that the main character does where she talks about the notion of the cool girl and what it is to be the cool girl and how you try and how you perform. And watching that and thinking about it over the past few months and then coming back for this episode, I really saw Mila Kunis's character as that emblematic cool girl. And I know it really set Andrea off in that episode, but and I think Mila Kunis herself as an actress and a public figure also gives off that vibe. She likes food, she doesn't like to work out, but she will work out maybe in private just to maintain that figure. I eat sauerkraut all day long. 
Now, our next comment came from Larry B. Vossler, who gave a rather personal account of how this episode hit him quite hard. He wrote, I'm currently overcoming anorexia, and things have improved vastly. I have my moments where it comes back and hits me really hard. I've learned ways to deal with my image, my relationship, and my food, and my weight. But being a male, well, the physical appearance, though at times I feel male, you know what, this is another part of the discussion, adds further stigma and stress with me dealing with the issue. These subjects are not talked about and are pushed out or downsized with masculine language and terminology. So when I found out you two were doing a podcast on the topic, I was intrigued and excited, and I was not let down. Again, I'm always so glad to hear a male perspective on something like this. Another listener actually reached out to me over Facebook to talk about his personal struggles with food and how as a male suffering from traditionally female afflictions, he never really received enough sympathy and support for his condition. And it's just another example of how patriarchy hurts us all. Then we have a comment from E.S. And he makes several points in regards to Sam Raimi's film Drag Me to Hell. Now, he makes several connections between Steve Ditko, the creator of Spider-Man, who is a strong proponent of Anne Rand, who was an author, and her philosophy, which is called objectivism. As E.S. explains, objectivism is basically a strong belief in right or wrong with little to no gray area. And he says to quote, for Christine, she is damned by her actions, however slight, despite what reprimand she may try to make. So... Christine is just basically fucked by her own decisions is I think what ES is getting at. Now I was thinking about this and I have a hard time with that because the initial thing that triggers the events that plague Christine throughout the film is her refusal to help the old gypsy grandmother receive a loan at the bank. Now I feel like that decision there is a moral right and wrong and there is a professional right and wrong. So it's whichever one you value more, and I think that is an interesting distinction to make. So I think morally, maybe she made the wrong decision, but professionally she made the right one. And I like that juxtaposition of those two choices that we all face. That's right. Objectivism, as I understand it from Ayn Rand, and it's been a long time since I've read her, and I remember grappling really hard with Fountainhead, is... She purports a kind of objectivism that's very uncompromising and unflinching. And when I think of the character in The Fountainhead of Howard Rourke, he was an architect who wanted to make shit the way he wanted to make it. And you take it or you leave it. And I'm looking out for number one because that is my responsibility as a human. And I see a lot of that in this film in that Christine's choices were to serve herself. Is like, you know what? I deserve this. I need to climb the corporate ladder. And if that means fuck you all, then fuck you all. I'm looking out for number one. And that is the good and evil binary that's being presented here. Now, I think that's a really complicated issue for me because... I consider myself very driven and very strong and I create things that did not exist before in the image that I envisioned them. But at the same time, I've had to make plenty of compromises to be able to get there. And so I have a huge fascination with Ayn Rand's objectivism and I thought that was a really interesting comment. And I'm going to look for more examples in the future. I want to bring that into the podcast. I'm not a a brilliant woman at all. I wish I were, but I'm not brilliant. 
Well, and also just speaking about the different expectations placed on men and women, I think we see Christine punished for making what is perceived to be a more male choice. You know, this is the choice her boss, a male boss, heavily hints that she should make. And this is the hard choice that maybe a male coworker would make. You know, if we take this kind of look of objectivism on this film, she's making the quote-unquote incorrect decision for her gender. She should be more nurturing, more sympathetic to a grandmother and a family. Next up, we receive a really lovely message from Andy from Texas, who writes, and I'm paraphrasing here, I know you may be sick of being labeled a feminist podcast, but I think people love it. It fills a much-needed void in the world of horror fandom, where women are so often included merely for their physical attributes. I know that my little sister, a budding college feminist, and myself, a gay, find it refreshing to have discovered a podcast that is not run by a couple of straight white fanboys, though we love them too. And I want to thank you, Andy, for that. That's a very lovely comment. And it's not that we're tired of being labeled as a feminist podcast. I think we could say that we're tired of being dismissed as a feminist podcast. And we're proud to wave that banner. And we hope our listeners are too. And the bulk of our issue with people who reject us on grounds of being a feminist podcast is just really a lack of understanding of what feminism is, which I think is a paramount frustration of any feminist or any free-thinking individual, really. Yeah, I, I mean, I will happily take on that mantle, but I think it's funny that that is the first thing we get labeled with. We get a variety of comments in this arena, and there are some who say, oh, well, you know, these two chicks, I can subscribe to this brand of feminism, and this is okay, and it's understandable, and it's jokey, and it's fun, and we're likable enough, I guess. And I hope that for the people who saw that and were introduced to maybe some of these ideas through us, that you will continue to seek out a lot more discussions and thoughts and ideas that maybe aren't as gently served on a platter. Because it is. It's a hard conversation to have. It's a hard conversation to yourself. It's an even harder conversation to have in a group. I have been guilty of like shutting down when I've been faced with anti-feminist comments because, fuck, sometimes it's easier just to stay quiet. But I am trying to get better at it. While we also have some listeners who don't like us because we are feminists. We had a really interesting review on iTunes that was really angry when we tried to ram that feminist stuff down his throat. And we apparently sunk his boner. So to that guy, I'm sorry that you listen to podcasts to get hard. There are medications for that. And you know what? For that one listener, we will post some links on our page because God knows a lot of email I get has to do with sinking boners and treatment thereof. Ask your doctor if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Viagra if you take nitrates for chest pain. It may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Side effects include headache, flushing, upset stomach, and abnormal vision. To avoid long-term injury, seek immediate medical help for an erection lasting more than four hours. Now, our next message is actually just totally reifying what Andy just said. It's our old friend Owen Garth again. And he writes, To be honest... I avoided this episode for a while because it didn't sound that interesting. I didn't watch either movie, and though I am aware of eating disorders, they have never affected me. But the reason I listen to your show is that it forces me to hear about the topics and perspectives I don't normally experience. And Owen, if the podcast forces you to think about topics and perspectives in ways you wouldn't normally, then our work here is done, and I don't think we need to put out any more podcasts. Oh, sweet. Are we done? Can we go? Because I'm sleepy. 
And our next comment by someone who identifies as corpse-fed fireflies wrote, It was an amusing turn of events when Andrea described an eating disorder that is very similar to experiences I have had. But I had a similar experience while reading a Nat Geo article a few years ago. When I could not solve a color-based secret code puzzle, Nat Geo led me to say, Well, shit, I'm partly colorblind. I wonder what my next self-diagnostic shift in the paradigm that I use to view my past self will be. I thought that was so funny. That must have been so weird. And I often contemplate how different people experience things like color differently because color really can't be described without reference to another color. So it's really impossible to know if we're experiencing them all the same. And I guess it partially accounts to how some people paint their home interiors. And you'll pardon me, I'm apartment hunting, so I've seen some doozies. So next we have a more general comment from someone by the name of Caleb Price who wrote a very nice message about how they're enjoying the podcast. They enjoy the length of our podcast, how it's perfect for listening to during my morning commute and picking right back up where I left off on the way home. Thanks for giving me a better commute and a cleaner house. I can totally relate. When I was really into cereal recently, I was taking the long way home and it was pretty life-changing. I actually miss it a lot. Caleb also had a lot of great suggestions, including horror in television. And uh, he's aware that there was a Buffy episode, but he mentioned some other shows, including American Horror Story, The Twilight Zone, The Walking Dead, Yuck. He wrote Yuck. I kind of agree. X-Files, Tales from the Crypt, Supernatural. And it's a great suggestion, really. The Buffy episode was a really tricky one for us because there are just so many episodes and there's so much to pull out of that series on a whole. What we actually did for that episode is we each picked two episodes that we thought would be analytically interesting and we forced each other to watch it and focus on. And I'd definitely be down to tackle a season of American Horror Story or maybe Hannibal. And I've also recently finished season one of Penny Dreadful and I really enjoyed that. We do Americans Horror Story. We have to do the first season because if anyone follows my writing at all, you'll know. And you can still find it on Famous Monsters website. I recap the entirety of the second series of American Horror Story. And I kind of started losing it towards the end because watching it week to week, part where Anne Frank shows up, but it's played by the chick from Run, Lola, Run. And then I actually started recapping season three Coven for them. And I actually gave up halfway through because I, I got so tired of writing about how, oh, it's another week. Jessica Lang's being a sassy broad. You know, it just got a bit tiring, but maybe Andrea will pinch me into submission. Could you be more of a pathetic, cheap cliche? And another suggestion that Caleb had was on meta horror and specifically mentioning Scream. And for anyone that doesn't know, I was actually a guest on the Rumorg podcast. Now, the Rumorg podcast has come down, but feedback is slowly re-uploading all the episodes. There are a lot of episodes to do, so I know it's going to take them some time, but these episodes will get back up. But if you want to hear me talk about Scream for upwards of six hours over three episodes, you can listen to those episodes, and God bless. You're going to stick your dick in her head and fuck her brain. Yes, Andrea, that was a very good... uh, No, seriously, that was a good point. So you can engage with us through the usual channels. There's our Facebook page. We're on Twitter and our brand spanking new episode. Oh, fuck. This pillow just fell on me and I got scared. You're going to have so much fun editing this. Quint is kind of your, I don't want to say quintessential because his name is Quint. And then it's just Quint, Quint, Quinty, Quint. Ooh, I'm Andrea. I'm so fancy. I have a booklet about Jaws.
I do. And on the first page, it has this great quote from Steven Spielberg. I'm doing this to support your point, by the way. So you can make you. fun of me if you want. <laughs> I find every man in all of these movies super attractive. Jesus fucking Christ. Peen, 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 Nope. Checking. I'm checking the mic for sound. Christine's brother figure in the Sam Raimi universe is probably Ash, who becomes a hyper-masculinized ver- Who becomes a hyper-masculinized- Jesus fucking Christ. And becomes a hyper-masculinized- Until your next meal, office hours are closed. Until the next time you feel body shame, office hours are closed. We've got the directors who had an idea of what it was what they, that they... We had a couple of directors who had it in their heads what it is what they want. Fuck me. I have to admit, listeners, I did not watch it. I, I downloaded it. I mean, I bought it. And I had... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I hate to drop the P word, but patriarchy. She is in... Pretty much every scene. Maybe actually every scene. Mm, I don't want to say anything absolute and be wrong, because you guys fucking love that. <laughs> I can just say to our listeners, Andrea seems to be in an exceptionally good mood tonight, and I'm not joking. <sighs> I'm full of holiday cheer. Fine, jelly beans. Have some jelly bellies. The first film we're going to be talking about today is 2010's Saint, directed by the one and only Dick Moss. Are you sure about that pronunciation? We really want to say Dick Moss. Dick Moss? Moss. Score one for Dick Moss. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're having way too much fun with this guy's name. No, I think Dick Moss really succeeded in making a really big film full of really, you know, thick, heady ideas. And it's still a lot of fun. And, you know, it comes a bit quickly, but I think it still works. <laughs> Up next, it was the most wonderful time of the year. It was Halloween. So for our Halloween episode, we talked about the Blair Witch Project. Now, we got a lot of great comments on this episode as well. A lot of people mentioned how freaky this episode was, just in terms of how scary the clips were and how scared we were both getting, and it really impacted them. Even a few of my friends who listen to the podcast mentioned that to me. So um, she's still out there. Andy Lewis writes in again and says some really nice things. And then he mentions uh, a show called Ghost Watch. And it was a BBC special. I believe the year was 1992. And if you can get your hands on Ghost Watch, I used to have a DVD of it. And it is freaky. It is, for me, like almost Blair Witch level freaky, almost. It was shown as a live event using like real BBC anchors and then this fictional story that was set up. And I actually, you know, have talked about it and I think it's a bit of a precursor to the found footage genre, but it is, I believe, still available on DVD and I highly, highly recommend it if you're into this kind of story. And our next comment about the Blair Witch episode comes from someone identified as Bela and she writes, when I first watched Blair Witch, I was pretty rural, so I found it a bit harder to empathize with the main characters. I really felt more of a connection to the locals they mocked, and I really felt like they shouldn't be there. As something of a hillbilly, I was frustrated that they could be lost where there was a creek that close to them, since my upbringing taught me that creeks are like roads. They only go in two directions, and if you pick one and follow it, you'll come to a road or a town before long. It just really drove the fact that these were dumb city folk who were going to die out there. 
And then she writes, when I hear other people's opinions on the film, I always wonder how much being a person who views a house in the middle of the woods as a point of nostalgia colors the perceptions of this movie. And yes, Bela, your message is so full of yes. One of my favorite things about horror is just standpoint theory, is the ability to situate yourself and analyze your own reactions to this film and why they might be different from everyone else's and consider everyone's point of view. And that is what really floats my boat about horror. I love hearing about how different people can situate their circumstances and what they're viewing and make observations based on that. So you won this episode. Bela likens the Blair Witch almost to a kind of quasi Scooby-Doo episode where the Fisher guys at the beginning don't reveal themselves to be the Blair Witch at the end, which I thought was a great analogy. Now, speaking as city folk, my perception, and just because just I'm, I'm going to nitpick for a second, my understanding, and I do agree, and I think even if I, city girl of off city girls, was lost in the woods, if I found a creek, I know, I follow that one direction, I'm going to get out of there some way, somehow. But I think the freaky thing was is that they were following the creek, and it led them in a circle because of the witch. There was definitely the strong impression that the witch was manipulating the woods environment and making them more lost than they should have been. And it's also something that was in a movie called Grave Encounters. The movie is mediocre at best. It's classic found footage. But the only part of it that I found really unsettling was when they went down a hallway and turned around and there was a brick wall. And there's no special effects to do that. All you need to do is set the camera up in a different spot. But it was so disorienting and jarring that it really affected me. So I do get that point. And I think there's also an element in almost all horror movies where you kind of marvel at the stupidity of the characters on screen. Like how many slashers have we seen where it's, I think we better split up. No, God, no, don't fucking split up. Are you kidding me? I think that's part of the fun. When I watch the film, I feel like I wouldn't do anything differently other than I might have maybe hanged myself a bit sooner. When the cigarettes ran out, I would have just killed myself. I think I would have just curled up in a fetal position after, like, day two. Moving along to our November episode, we talked about Rosemary's Baby, and we got another excellent message from Jess, who writes how much she enjoyed the podcast, how much she enjoys that movie. She writes... This is just such a wonderfully creepy movie. I really liked all the points you touched on in the podcast. I also appreciate that you brought up the Polanski issue, as sometimes it gets glossed over. My personal rule tends to be that I'll watch his stuff if it's on, but I won't pay for it. And first of all, I think that's kind of hilarious. It reminds me of some vegans who it's like, I'll buy leather if it's used, so I'm not paying to support the industry. But I, I really, I hope we never gloss over a rape scandal. Of, of all the horrible things that I intend to do in my life, I don't want that one written on my epitaph. And it's tricky within horror circles because there are definitely some who want to separate his work from his personal life. But horror is just so personal a medium. And I think it's really interesting and also important to look at the creative behind the work and what might have motivated their particular portrayals of darkness. I agree with Andrea. I think there are schools of thought, which is you separate the artist from the work, but I increasingly have more and more of a problem with that. I think there are so many great artists who live their lives and nothing too extraordinary happens and they are just like us, just trying to survive. But I think the increasing amount of disturbing things we learn, especially about public figures, it makes it really hard to support them and support their ideas and their ideals, which they perpetrate with their art. 
there are some gross people out there. And I think, as we mentioned in this episode, there are so many strange parallels and mirrors to Polanski's own life. There are so many insane conspiracy theories about Roman Polanski actually selling his soul to Satanists to get this kind of wealth and fame, but the price he paid was being, you know, banned from the United States. But as I mentioned in the episode, I think the important thing to think about Rosemary's Baby is that there's so much taken directly from the book, and I think rightfully so. I think Ira Levin is a really amazing writer, and that this comes more from his views of the time and the era than it does from, I think, maybe a very sick mind. And our next comment from that episode comes from our friend, the demon Owen Garth again, and he writes how Guy is such a bastard and makes you wonder how much feelings he had for Rosemary at all. And he's absolutely right. Guy is a hell of a rotten bastard for sure. I think their relationship is really interesting and the way it, it informs the movie in really important ways, I almost wish that we spent a bit more time on it. In retrospect, I think he thought he loved her because in his mind... Loving someone meant having their pretty hand to hold and kissing their pretty face and coming home to a tastefully decorated apartment with his clothes pressed and dinner on the stove. You know, this was the definition of love in that time. And I'm I'm certainly not excusing Guy's behavior by any means, but he loved her for being Mrs. Guy Woodhouse. And being Mrs. Guy Woodhouse meant, you know, sacrificing her womb to be the seat of Satan. I think Guy really loved the way Rosemary looked at him. I think he was one of those guys. He was one of those, and and I know a lot of actors, and some actors are very, very egotistical and very self-centered. Not all, but some. They love the way they feel when they're around this person and the way that person makes them feel. And I think what is amazing, just looking at Rosemary's Baby from a purely relationship point of view, is that this is a young woman's first relationship. And I think, you know, we look back at our first serious relationships, and they were fraught with probably a lot of mistakes and a lot of things we are like, I will never do that again. Unfortunately, Rosemary's first, I think, big relationship wound up with her getting married and having the demon seed in her. So that's all for our episode comments, but we did get a couple of general comments that we would like to mention here on our assessment episode. And one of them comes from, once again, Jess, and she made a really interesting observation in that she wrote, your podcast on Jennifer's body made me think about the criteria I have for what makes a feminist movie. I think the key for me is agency and depth of characterization. If the main female characters have and demonstrate some type of agency and are characterized generally well, given a chance to act like actual people, I feel that the movie is feminist. And I think this is a really interesting observation and Insofar as we are a feminist podcast, we have never really taken the time to flesh out exactly what constitutes a feminist film, a feminist reading, a feminist character. Now, when Alex and I initially met, it was on an episode of a YouTube video series called Fright Bites, where we were called upon to talk about feminist characters in film, and we actually had very different readings. We called up different movies, we discussed the characters in different ways, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about feminism and horror is that there is a lot of subjectivity. There is a lot of room for analysis and standpoint theory. Like I mentioned, this is feminist to me because it makes me feel empowered and empowerment is feminism. And it's 
a huge, wonderful world that you're never going to get a conclusive answer to. And I think that's part of the glory. And I really like that Jess tapped in on that and we were able to bring it up in this episode. Yeah, if only that YouTube video was still available, then we could link you guys to it. But it got, I think it got taken down for some reason. I can't remember. Anyway, but I think Jess really hit on a word that I really like, especially when we talk about feminism, and that is agency. We've already touched on it a bit this episode, but I think that's a great crystallization of generally when we talk about feminist characters, they have that agency. They have that willingness to fight for what they believe in and stride forward into the unknown and maybe they don't always succeed but they're trying and she actually cites some of her favorite feminist films which would be Candyman, The Ring, Silence of the Lambs, all of which we talked about in our first year as being really great examples of that and I I completely agree with her. So that's it we've come to the end of our 20 plus page deck of notes that we had we are very fortunate that we have so many wonderful letters and comments to go through to to make up an assessment episode. It's looking to be a very long episode. We haven't cut it and edited it yet, but uh, we've just been going on and on because we love to hear from you and we really love to have the opportunity to engage with you. I wish we could call you up and Skype, but this is as close as we can get to it. So thank you for your continued support and your discussions because they mean everything to us. And we really hope to continue to hear from you going forward. And we want to thank everyone who submitted to our Horror Movie Heroes book contest. It's the shortest I could get that. We do have two winners, uh, one of our listeners, Bunny, and another listener of ours, Eric. So they've already been informed. We have their addresses, and those books will be going out very shortly. And thank you so much, and we uh, hope you guys enjoy those books. Now, in addition to being our assessment and mail reading episode, it is our first episode for 2015, and 2015 is going to be a big year for the Faculty of Horror. We teased about it a little bit last episode about how there's going to be some changes, all changes for the good, all changes that are going to make the podcast better, easier to record, easier to access, and all of that good stuff. Now, one of the changes that we're going to be making is we've decided that at the end of each of our episodes, we are going to mention what movie we're going to talk about next to give you guys some time to prep. We get a lot of comments about how people love our podcast, but they really do wish they came out more frequently. Monthly isn't quite enough faculty of horror to get your fix. And I totally get that. I know what it's like. Serial was killing me to wake week from week, so I can only imagine loving a podcast that only comes out monthly. But the fact of the matter is that it's actually killing us to even get this thing out monthly. So we're really wish we could do it full time and quit our day jobs and do nothing else but that is not on the horizon for 2015 at least but in the meantime what we're going to do is we're going to mention the episode we're talking about next and you've got a whole month to study just going back for a moment unless you are a rich person and you want to give us a lot of money then you should email us at info at facultyofhorror.com and we can talk because i'd totally be into doing this full time for the right dollar amount So, are you ready? Are you ready to hear what February is going to be about? In light of what February means to fellow Canadian Torontonians and Alex and I, we decided to choose a movie that reflects the bleak, isolated, blow-your-head-off winter conditions that this climate can afford to look at Bruce McDonald's Canadian zombie meta-masterpiece, Pontypool. 
It is weird. It is creepy. It is awesome. It's actually been mentioned to us a few times to do, so here we are. We're doing it, and I am actually really excited to get a chance to revisit it, think about it a bit more, and talk to you guys all about it. So you've got your homework assignment, you've got your reading materials, you've got your pencils sharpened, but for now, office hours are closed. Where I came from and where I'm going In this lonely, windy world Tell me no. 